You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. The U.S. Treasury Department sanctions a Russian research institute for its role in the Triton Trisis ICS malware attacks. Coordinated inauthenticity with a commercial as well as a political purpose, the Clean Network project gains ground in Central and Eastern Europe. Robert M. Lee from Dragos shares insights on the recent DOJ indictments of Russians allegedly responsible for the Sandworm campaign. Rick Howard explores SD-WANs. And data breaches afflict a large Finnish psychiatric institute. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, October 26, 2020. On Friday, the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control announced sanctions against the State Research Center of the Russian Federation's Central Scientific Research Institute of Chemistry and Mechanics for, quote, knowingly engaging in significant activities undermining cybersecurity against any person, including a democratic institution or government on behalf of the government of the Russian Federation, end quote. Specifically, this comes down to the Institute's role in developing the Trisis Triton malware. Trisis Triton was designed to disable industrial safety systems, obviously a dangerous and unusually aggressive design, one more suited to the production of hazardous kinetic effects than to the simple compromise of IT systems. It was used against a Saudi petrochemical plant in 2017 but misfired. Had it functioned as intended, its effects could have been potentially lethal. As Treasury explained the incident, quote, the Triton malware was designed to target a specific industrial control system controller used in some critical infrastructure facilities to initiate immediate shutdown procedures in the event of an emergency. The malware was initially deployed through phishing that targeted the petrochemical facility. Once the malware gained a foothold, its operators attempted to manipulate the facility's ICS controllers. During the attack, the facility automatically shut down after several of the ICS controllers entered into a failed safe state, preventing the malware's full functionality from being deployed and prompting an investigation that ultimately led to the discovery of the malware. Researchers who investigated the cyber attack and the malware reported that Triton was designed to give the attackers complete control of infected systems and had the capability to cause significant physical damage and loss of life. In 2019, the attackers behind the Triton malware were also reported to be scanning and probing at least 20 electric utilities in the United States for vulnerabilities. 
end quote. The Treasury Department's sanctions are noteworthy in that they're being directed against a nominally disinterested scientific research organization. The authority for the sanctions is Section 224 of the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, known as CATSA. The specific measures resemble those taken against other organizations the Office of Foreign Assets Control has placed on the specially designated nationals list. Quote, all property and interests in property of the Institute that are in or come within the possession of U.S. persons are blocked, and U.S. persons are generally prohibited from engaging in transactions with them. Additionally, any entities 50% or more owned by one or more designated persons are also blocked. Moreover, non-U.S. persons who engage in certain transactions with the Institute may themselves be exposed to sanctions. End quote. Not all coordinated inauthenticity is state-sponsored or even directed toward primarily political ends. Late Friday, Graphica described inauthentic networks based in Myanmar that Facebook took down on October 21st. Graphica says they contain a mix of clickbait, much of it involving celebrity news and gossip, and political content, much of it pro-army and anti-Muslim. The clickbait apparently predominated. The motivation for the operation, Graphica concluded, was more commercial than political. ZDNet reports that four more European governments have signed on to the U.S.-led Clean Networks program, Slovakia, Bulgaria, North Macedonia, and Kosovo. They joined the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Serbia, Slovenia, Albania, Greece, Poland, Ukraine, Romania, and the Czech Republic, in agreeing in principle on the threat Chinese companies, like Huawei, but not only Huawei, potentially pose to 5G security. Much of Europe and North America, whether they've signed on to clean networks or not, now have expressed official skepticism about the wisdom of allowing Chinese hardware into their 5G infrastructure. The U.S. is currently in talks with both Brazil and India about 5G security. Finnish psychotherapy center Vastamo has sustained a data breach with loss of patient information, and individual patients have begun receiving extortion demands asking for three to 500 euros to keep their clinical details quiet. The story first began to appear in tabloids last Wednesday as victims complained of the extortion notes they'd begun receiving. Details remained sparse, and Vastamo seems to have been slow to recognize that it had been breached. A press release from the company yesterday said that it believes it sustained two separate attacks, one in November of 2018 and another between December 2018 and March of 2019. Information belonging to some 300 patients is believed to have been published online. Computing reports that overall some 40,000 patients' data were compromised. Thousands of victims have already filed criminal reports. The incident has received attention at the highest levels of Finland's government. President Sally Ninisto called the attacks especially cruel insofar as they constituted an assault on the victims' inner selves. National authorities are investigating and have said they're determined to bring the criminals responsible to justice. Hey everybody, I want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor, Splunk. You know, you need to keep operations humming around the clock, but potential disruptions are everywhere. 
Splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime. The world's largest enterprises rely on Splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient, resilient, and innovative. With Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com slash resilience. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard, and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show the CyberWire's Chief Analyst and Chief Security Officer, Rick Howard. Rick, great to talk to you again. Thank you, sir. Uh, on this week's CSO Perspectives, you are talking about SD-WAN. And uh, I have a, an admission to make that before we <laughs> we're going to meet here today, I am not really up to speed on exactly what an SD-WAN is and how it could be important for security. So before we dig in here, why don't you just take a minute and bring me up to speed? Well, let me uh, tell you, you're not alone, my friend. There's a lot of people <laughs> in the same boat, and so was I, okay, when I started working on this episode. And by the way, as many of our hash table experts were too, so don't feel bad. Mm, okay. <laughs> All right, so here's what I learned. The first thing you have to know is that the way we are building our internal enterprise networks is going through a revolution. You may not even know that. The old way, starting, say, in the early 2000s, was that we needed to connect our data centers that we managed and our other remote sites together. And we did that by installing expensive but fast and reliable MPLS circuits between the sites that we leased from the telecommunications companies. And, okay. you know, by the way, I know you're reaching for the Google machine um, to look up what MPLS stands for. Let me just stop you there. It is multi-protocol label switching all right, so put that yeah. in your nerd basket. <laughs> I was just gonna—I was gonna guess that actually. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just a—it's just a dedicated, uh, for the time, high-speed connection between the mothership and all the the remote offices. Is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah, dedicated yep. hardware, dedicated software to establish those connections. Okay. And and for security, we would backhaul the traffic destined for the internet to a data center that housed the security stack. So. Internet inbound and outbound traffic had to go through the security stack, and that's how we protected our environments. Hmm. 
So fast forward to today, enterprises of all sizes, as you know, are moving their workloads out of their data centers and into the cloud somewhere, either through mm. SaaS services or IAS and PAS services from big providers like Microsoft, Google, or Amazon. Because of that, it is making less and less sense to maintain these expensive internal MPLS circuits when mostly what we each site needs is an internet connection to the local cloud provider. Now, you do that through cheap and less reliable broadband connections. And in the very near future, I mean, you know, a couple of years probably, you might be doing this through 5G connections. Hmm. But remember when I said these connections were unreliable? Yeah. Well, the way we compensate for that is to install not one broadband connection, but many at each site, depending on how big your organization is. So uh, remember belt that. Belt-in suspenders. Say that again? Belt-in suspenders. Belt-in suspenders. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so you got to remember that broadband connections are way cheaper compared to MPLS circuits, so it kind of makes sense. Yeah. All that is great, but now the complexity for managing all those internet connections in terms of data flow priority and choosing the fastest internet connection, not to mention ensuring that all that traffic goes through a security stack somewhere, has exponentially grown. Hmm. This is where SD-WAN comes in. It is a software networking abstraction layer that manages all those connections. So to help me explain this, I was talking to Paul Calitude. He came to the hash table this week to talk about it. He is the Palo Alto Network's chief security officer for the Americas, and he came up with a fantastic analogy to describe what is going on here. Resilience it essentially makes up for the lack of, of dedication and, and lack of reliability, because now I have many, many unre unreliable options to get back home. And eventually some of those paths, it's like ways, right? Like the maps, you know, all of a sudden it's telling you to go a different path, but ultimately it's looking and going, yeah, we'll get you there eventually, right? Like on time and uh, you're going in back neighborhoods and going through dirt trails and you're like, well, this is efficient. But that's kind of the way SD-WAN works. Like the big visualization here is SD-WAN is the ways for networking. <laughs> All right. Well, so I, I I get it now. I mean, it's we we're talking to, this is basically as if we had... For our WAN, we had uh, a version of Waze to just make it all, right, to make it easy, uh, it, just in one place, right? It's uh, guiding us, guiding us from point A to point B a way we didn't even know that existed. That's exactly the way it is. And I took this quote from the Google website because it will help, all right? It says, Here's, here it is, quote, Knowing what's happening on the road with Waze, even if you know the way, Waze tells you about traffic, construction, crashes, and more in real time. If traffic is bad on your route, Waze will change it to save you time, end quote. That is exactly what SD-WAN does for you on your network. You know, I, it's funny. I, I've, I've come to believe that um, you uh, don't believe Waze at your own peril, right? <laughs> because time and time again, I, I, Waze has been telling me to go somewhere or any of these GPS, you know, smart GPS apps. And, and, they're, and I'm just going, this isn't right. This isn't right. This can't be right. I've never gone this way before. This is a completely, and then all of a sudden, bam, I'm there. I'm at my destination. I'm like, what? wait a minute. How did yeah. that happen? I didn't even know that that connection was possible. Well, and, you, and so, you look at what those guys do. They said, they're not going to get you where the best Way, but they're going to get you there a way, all right? So uh, yeah. and that's, that's kind of what SD-WAN is because you're going to have this myriad of connections of ways to get to the internet and back and forth through your own enterprise. It's going to find the way to get your packets to where they need to go. Yeah. All right. Well, there's a lot more to learn about this, and I know you all will dig deep into it. It's uh, CSO Perspectives. It's over on CyberWire Pro. Do check it out. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. 
with over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily. Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus-year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. And joining me once again is Robert M. Lee. He is the CEO at Dragos. Uh, Rob, it's always great to have you back. Um, we just had the you know the recent news that uh, half a dozen Russian military officers were charged in a hacking campaign. This is the the Sandworm campaign. Uh, the Justice Department going after them. I wanted to check in with you. What is your take on this? Yeah, I mean overall, I thought this was a really good and strong move especially ahead of the election. I think the Department of Justice and FBI as a whole have a bit of a credibility problem walking into election cybersecurity discussions, right or wrong. And coming out ahead of the election with a really detailed indictment um, with some really significant access. I mean, this was there's components of this that definitely came from either allied intelligence or NSA and CIA um, supporting these when you're actually getting into um, individual operator names and and really you know core details of what they were doing on the adversary side, not just on the victim side. Um, so by and large, real strong messaging. Um, I think the the message is pretty clear on you know we're willing to burn our resources to burn your resources, and that's a really significant thing for um, any government to say to an adversary state. The the, the two kind of critiques that I had, and, and so I, I don't want this to get taken out of context, that, I, that I'm critiquing the report as a whole. Again, overall, well done to the folks that put this together. Um, the, the two critiques, and, and I'd say one maybe a hilarious thing, um, number one on the on the critique, I, I do think the 2015-2016 Ukraine attacks deserved a standalone um, sort of admonishment. Um, I've been pretty critical of that when they happened as well, that we did not have any Western leaders come out and even condemn the attacks. Forget Forget the attribution, forget any aspect of that. Um, but even coming out and saying, look, uh, a cyber attack that caused electric power outages on civilian infrastructure is exactly what we said for years we don't want to see. Let's set the precedent that we're going to come out and condemn this. And I've, I've been fairly critical over the years that we never saw that. And I think that was a mistake. Um, and so it's good to see it in the report as part of the, the you know history of this threat, if you will. Um, but seeing it called out by the DOJ and see it called out you know, five years later – I would have liked to have seen a, a larger state sooner kind of effort. Um, the other critique I have, and I'll, I'll have this critique forever, which I fully understand its place in the strategy. I fully understand the the opposing viewpoints here. Uh, I, I'm not saying they're not without value, um, but I just generally do not like the name and shame strategy of individuals, especially when they're in the military. I mean, two mm. of those individuals in the wanted Wild Wild West poster-styled, you know, uh, appendix they had um, were in military uniform even um, in the pictures. And I just think it sets an extraordinarily bad precedent um, that we are going to not only name and shame but do indictments and hold accountable the individuals more than the state themselves. 
those individuals now have restrictions on them and have been publicly called out in ways that will never be able to go back um, to normal life. And yet we don't see a lot of sanctions or or actions against the, the GRU or the Russian state themselves. And I think as the United States, where we have a really active cyber command, a really active um, national security agency, it is a mistake to put the focus on military and and individuals. Um, And I really, really abhor the day that we're going to see U.S. enlisted members or similar on Wild Wild West posters in Russia or China or Iran. Why do you suppose they're coming at it this way? What what do you suppose the the intelligence community seizes the the advantage of of naming and shaming that way? Yeah, I, I think... Yeah, so the, the opposing views I've heard before, one, one which is an opposing view, it's just the reality, is in the, you know, the DOJ's lane, um, specifically is criminal indictments. Um, and to do that, you, you've got to name people. So if you're going to invoke the strategy of using the Department of Justice against these cyber threats, um, the, the naming of individual victims and the naming of individual adversaries makes a lot of sense in an indictment. Um, so I don't think this is a critique on the DOJ, I think from a U.S. government strategy, they have used the DOJ multiple times now in this way. And I would advise elevating the discussion beyond the DOJ um, to be more about the states themselves and not the actor. As it relates to uh, the counterpoints I've heard, you know, one of them very clearly, yeah, I think a number of people think, oh, well, they're not going to get arrested. This doesn't matter. It is actually really impactful. Um, those those indictments also carry over to allied states and states that honor sort of the indictments themselves and, and making it difficult for those individuals to travel, makes it difficult for them to go on holiday, uh, could be implications for their financials uh, and bank accounts and similar. So the naming and shaming aspect does have impact to those individuals. And again, the counterpoints I've heard before are it does actually deter potentially um, the individuals from from ever taking um, those actions in the first place. I don't really buy that. Having and, and obviously, I'm very biased here. But having been mm-hmm. in the U.S. military and served in the National Security Agency, if my commander were to tell me to go do a mission, um, you know, supported by the president or whatever else, and there was a fear of retribution or um, being named and shamed by a foreign state that probably would have emboldened me, not deterred me. It was this aspect of, ah, well, I'm I'm here to serve the cause. You know, if, if something goes wrong, that, you know, consequences be damned, um, you mm-hmm. know, support the Constitution of the United States. And, and so I, I don't want to mirror image the adversary too much here, but I do question uh, that the deterrence on individuals is real or impactful. Um, and and more moreover, I do think the broader United States strategy against cyber threats has to take into consideration stronger positions of condemnation, norm setting, uh, sanctions, um, economic sort of tools that we have, diplomatic tools that we have. And it seems that the DOJ is doing a really good job, but it's kind of, you know, one one stool of the strategy or one leg of the strategy. And I, I think there's a couple other pieces missing right now. Hmm. All right. Well, Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. 
save you time and keep you informed. It's good to the last drop. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security Ha! I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed, and check out the Recorded Future podcast, which I also host. The subject there is threat intelligence, and every week we talk to interesting people about timely cybersecurity topics. That's at recordedfuture.com slash podcast. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Dina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. Vanta.